Hello and welcome to this episode of Eldrick Talks. Today I talk with Miranda Amstead about her special upbringing in New York, the medical procedure that changed her life, and her research for her new book. Enjoy! Miranda, how are you doing today? I'm excellent. How are you, Eldrick? I'm also good. So, there's so many interesting things about you. I almost don't know where to start, but maybe let's just start with where you were born. Because you grew up in Manhattan, but you weren't born there, right? That's correct. I was actually, my, my dad was in the U.S. State Department during the Cold War, uh, stationed at various uh, Yugoslavia and Austria and actually uh, Munich at one point. And so I was born in one of those countries, and um, but born a, a United States citizen. That's the way it works when your parents are, you know, either work for the military or the State Department. It's considered you're a U.S. citizen no matter what. So I have, actually have. Do you have dual yeah, citizenship have then? Or? No, I actually have a U.S. State Department birth certificate. Hmm. How's that different? It's just fancy. <laughs> <laughs> it's not different. Just yeah, official. It's, a, it's something to brag about. Yeah. yeah. It just it has it has a raised stamp on it, so it makes me feel very important. Okay. And so from Europe, how did you how did you make your journey back? When, where, why? Well, it's sort of a sad story because I think my dad actually would have spent his entire life in the foreign service. But my mother, who was still quite young at that time, she was in her early thirties, got cancer. And it was determined, and remember, this is a long time ago. They didn't even have chemotherapy back then. It was determined that they should return to the United States for her to get better medical treatment, what they thought was better medical treatment. And that's what brought us back to New York, where she sadly passed away a few years later. And how long then were you, were you in New York? I grew up in Manhattan. I grew up in the city. Um, we did travel a lot. Uh, I went to camp in other places. I went to college in other So I've been all over the United States. But I did grow up right in the heart of Manhattan, the main borough. You know, there's five boroughs in New York. The main borough, the one that has the Empire State Building and all of that. And uh, went to school there. And it's definitely a different way to grow up than probably the average American. Yeah, you also had a somewhat of a private cook, right? Oh, yes, yes. Uh, we had a uh, we had an amazing chef who went on to publish about seven best-selling New York Times cookbooks, and she ultimately got a U.S. stamp with her picture on it as one of, they did some chef series. The food was amazing. I mean, I, I always say when I, when I die, if I go to heaven, I just want to eat her coconut cake. It was unbelievable. <laughs> And, and how was that in your situation, in a very, or rather affluent position, to grow up in, in Manhattan like that? Well, you know, I didn't know any different, right? Because uh, we all take our childhood sort of for granted. In years since, obviously getting to know people who've grown up in many other places, the Midwest or on the West Coast, I've realized it's almost like its own country, or it was then, you know, just... I mean, I did go to private school and it was just 
it's just sort of a different set of rules, a different way of looking at the world. You're kind of very sophisticated because you're exposed to so many museums. And of course we went to theater and ballet and all kinds of wonderful things, amazing restaurants. But there's also sort of a carefree part of childhood that you miss out on that I've since learned other people have. And of course not having, you know, a mom had a big effect on me too. And we had many different caregivers. And so it was, you know, sort of like the best of and the worst of kind of upbringing. Would you describe yourself as a child as some kind of a bookworm? I did read a lot. I don't think I thought of myself as a bookworm at the time. It's funny. I've, I've actually thought about this now as I'm writing my second novel, which is quite an intellectual endeavor. I think because my whole family were quite educated. It was like three generations of Harvard graduates. And I sort of went the other way. I wanted to be an actress and I wanted to sing and I wanted to be like the pretty fun girl. And so I don't think I ever thought of myself that way. However, when I look back, you know, by the time I graduated high school, I'd read Tolstoy and Dostoevsky and I loved Dickens. Um, Shakespeare, we did read in high school, but I don't think I really appreciated him the way I do now. Now I read him and I just think, what an unbelievably brilliant man whose thoughts still resonate so much 500 years later. I think in high school, you just don't have the life experience yet to really appreciate his thought pattern. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I was very into like 19th century classics. I'm not saying I didn't read any Americans, but I think I was sort of more into the Europeans and the British literature. Right, I talked about this kind of topic among the other interviews where we kind of asked, why is it so difficult in school to appreciate books and to appreciate reading? And we thought it probably has something to do with that. When you're in school, you're not necessarily reading for pleasure because you want to, right? Because you have to read this certain book And not only are you forced to read it, but then you're judged on it. Yes, I think that's 100% true. And I also, I remember at the time, I did, I, so I went to an all-girls school for many years, not by choice. <laughs> And I remember when we did read Shakespeare, that the teacher would analyze it like a surgeon, you know, taking this piece out, that piece out. And so the poetry and the beauty and the organicness of it was sort of lost. And I think when you come back to it later as an adult, where you don't have the surgeon there doing that, you go, wow, you know, this because you sort of see it more as a whole bouquet. And I, you know, I realize that's what teachers do. That's kind of their job. But I, I think sometimes they ruin art by dissecting it too much. Yeah. I mean, it's, when you ask Shakespeare, you probably would say that it's intended to maybe seen in a play and not analyzed like that. That's an interesting point as well. I mean, they are written as plays and obviously were meant to be performed. Um, that's actually a really good point. Were you a good student in school? You know, I was very good at what I was good at. I, I always tell people I'm an idiot savant. <laughs> I was very good at literature, history. I think they call that all the right brain things. Science and math, I was a disaster just I still am absolute disaster and I wasn't interested in them I didn't care I think I flunked geometry in 10th grade and never took another math class so you know 
I, I, one of my good personal properties is probably that I know my skill sets and I also know what I need to hire other people to do. Uh, someone else has to do my taxes because I don't know how to do that stuff. <laughs> and with so many Harvard graduates in your family, did you also go to Harvard? I did not. And that was not for lack of my father pressuring me endlessly to do so. It just wasn't my, again, I was sort of fighting the whole intellectual thing. I visited, my sister was, was going to Harvard at the time, and I remember going up to visit her. And it was very dry. And it was just, I was super into theater at that time. I absolutely wanted to be an actress. And I wanted to major in theater. And the only kind of theater programs they had at Harvard then, I don't know now, but then were extracurricular. There was nothing, you know, that you could, you could major in theater. And that's what I wanted to do. So it, to me, it just wasn't, I'm sure it was rebellious too, because that's where my father wanted me to go. And I probably wanted to just, you know, it was sort of the family rebel as that goes. But you also have a lot of family ties to the entertainment industry in general, right? I do. I actually do. Um, a couple of different ways. There's a rumor in my family that Richard Rogers, the uh, man who wrote many, many famous musicals back in the day, is like, you know, second cousin once removed. I have a picture of him with like some great uncle. Nobody knows exactly how he's related, but he's supposedly related on one side. I have a grandfather who started uh, the longest running news show that's still running on TV. I'm not going to name it because I actually use it in my novel under a different name. So we'll just sort of leave that nebulous, but um, that show is still on. And he had a first cousin who was a major like 1960s sitcom producer. And that was kind of interesting too. So yeah, there's this like entertainment kind of runs throughout my family. And still your father saw you not going to Harvard as a as a rebellion? Did everybody else from the entertainment industry? He he just thought, you know, everybody has like their family business. This was like <laughs> the family business. My mother's father had gone to Harvard. She went to what was then Radcliffe, you know, now they've joined together, so it's Harvard. My sister went to Harvard, my brother went to Harvard, and uncle and aunt, I mean, it was just, you know, that was just like the school. And um, I think in my dad's mind, that's just like was where you were supposed to go. I guess he assumed I was going to go there, and I probably shocked him by pushing back. But in the end, your love for theater didn't uh, lead to a life where you were an actress for a living, right? I did do a lot of uh, professional performing things throughout my life. I actually did work as a commercial actress, so doing TV spots and things like that um, regionally for a while. I did work as a nightclub singer uh, at one point. It's a while back, but I did. And um, so I, I did actually make some headway in that you know did i become a, a movie star like the protagonist in in the novel we're going to talk about mm -hmm. no i did not i did not it's a very tough field much like publishing i might add how, how did you how did you like acting loved acting i love performing i think singing was my favorite thing when i was doing that but i love performing it's the 
business of acting, you know, the, the me too stuff, that kind of thing that mm -hmm. is unpleasant. And I don't think is ever going to end. It doesn't seem like it's ended despite the fact that, you know, a few of the worst offenders are in prison or have been in prison. It just kind of, you know, you've got, you've got young, beautiful women and older men with a lot of power. And that's always mm. a very difficult dynamic. And it's one that I explore in the novel Cut Back to Life that, um, you know, we're going to talk about because mm. I think it is a very central part of the business. There's no way to get around it. It's a very central part of the business. So I love the performing part, the business part, not so much. And then at some point you went on to be a, a CBS affiliate news anchor. Yes, it was. Uh, yes, exactly. I did that in the in the Midwest. Um, again, this is a few, few decades back, <laughs> a few years back. Um, but it was a small market. And so I was a very big fish in a very small sea. And um, it, I mean, it was fascinating. We wrote our own scripts. I learned how to back time. When you're in a market that small, you actually run the cameras yourself sometimes. You have to actually set them up on a you know tripod and film yourself. I mean, it was that small of a market. So it was a fascinating experience. I even did Sunday morning radio sports, which was hilarious because I know nothing about sports, nothing. And at that time, I mean, we're talking, this is quite a few years ago. You know, this is when I was young and I was in this small town. There was nothing to do. We would go out drinking rather heavily on a Saturday night. And so when you had to come in at, you know, 7 a.m. Sunday to do a morning radio broadcast, sometimes you were still a little hungover. <laughs> <laughs> I would imagine that having a background in performing and acting and singing would have some kind of beneficial impact on that news anchor job. Oh, absolutely. I mean, look, at the end of the day, and I don't think this has changed now, the main criteria for being a news anchor is to be videogenic and look good on camera and be able to read a teleprompter smoothly and make it sound organic. That's really all they do. <laughs> so um, now we had to write our own scripts. I mean, you know, in a small market, you have to do more. But obviously, in a big market, you have other people doing that for you. So you're really just showing up. Somebody's patting your face with powder and, you know, making sure you don't shine. And they're giving you a signal to go and you're reading whatever is on the teleprompter. I mean, that's pretty much all they do. Now, sometimes, of course, they have discussions with guests back and forth and things like that. And I think often you will see when they do that, that uh, they don't always know their topics as well as they probably should. Hmm. Um, at least that's my my estimation. But, you know, I've now done so much research on so many things that I think I'm maybe a little better versed than some of these news anchors <laughs> on these topics. <laughs> Between being a news anchor there and doing basically all your own, well, all your own camera stuff, being your own TV crew in the end, to now basically being an author, um, you also had a small publication that you worked in as an editor. Oh yes, actually, it wasn't that small. This was it was a, a niche industry. I won't say what industry, but it's a big industry news so we were covering global news within this industry 
it was an industry that has a lot to do with financial things. And um, whenever there's a lot of financial things, there's always a lot of criminal things. <laughs> they just <laughs> seem to go together like, uh, you know, yeah, yeah, like toast and butter. So we did fascinating stories. And I was a news editor for that site for almost nine years. And um, I mean, it was a fascinating job. And I, I think the best thing I took away from it for what I do now for writing fiction was I learned to research, to fact check. I learned to not take one source as the truth. You always have to look at several sources because sometimes you'll see something that contradicts something else or something that fills in a hole from something else. So I think it's really important when doing research as a writer for historical fiction, which is what I'm writing now, it's not the genre of the first novel that I wrote, but um, for what I'm writing now, you really have to look at a lot of places. And we have something here in America called Freedom of Information Act, which means that in theory, in theory, uh, old military and government documents are supposed to be available to the public upon request but they're a little tricky about it they hide things they bury things mm. sometimes they redact things so they can't you know, find you have things to be, all of a sudden they can't find it we don't know what happened it just disappeared <laughs> um yeah it just magically disappeared the bottom line is they're not putting anything out there that if they don't want you to know it they don't and i have read documents that are 80 years old that still have names and places redacted on them. Probably what happened is when they first make them public, which could have been, you know, 20, 25 years ago, was redacted then. And it's not like anyone's ever going to go back and you know, revise it. So they just leave it. Mm -hmm. But it is interesting that these very old documents still have information that is redacted. And your book that you already mentioned, Cut Back to Life, was inspired by your own experience with with a, with a spinal surgery, right? Yes. So about four years ago, I went into my neurosurgeon. I was having a lot of pain on one side of my leg and they do an MRI. And I don't know if you've ever had an MRI, but hmm. most of us who are not in the medical field, they're Twice. impossible. To, you don't you don't have no idea what you're looking at. You're just like, it just looks like a mess. But I could actually see that one of my one of my um, vertebrae split and it was crushing my sciatic nerve. And there's really only one fix for it, which is they go in, it's, it's a medieval surgery. <laughs> they go in, they drill holes in your affected vertebrae and they put screws that are made of titanium in and then they connect, then they have to do it to the vertebrae on each side. And then they create kind of these little you know, holding pins, because what they're trying to do is get the bone to merge together and they have various techniques they do, but it takes months. So they have to have a way to hold it together. And once the bone is merged, in theory, you don't need those screws. But think about it. If they go in and take them out, first of all, you now have holes in your vertebrae, <laughs> which means they're weaker. And secondly, you have to go through this whole incredibly gruesome procedure again so basically they just leave the screws in there and then you hope to god that you know one of them doesn't get loose and which apparently does happen oh, so yeah it's um i mean the only good thing is they used to do these with stainless steel now they use titanium and thank god it doesn't light up you know when you go through the airport screener mm -hmm. 
and you can still get MRIs. But it is, I, I will tell you, it's a major surgery. And in the aftermath of that, they actually had a friend who had written a lot on many books on Amazon and he guided me through because when you first self-publish, it's a very daunting process. I mean, there's really a lot of things you have to know that you're not going to know no matter what else you've done. And he guided me through the process and I wrote this book that sort of combined my entertainment background with what I'd gone through with the surgery and um, hopefully created you know, an interesting novel. That one is a romantic suspense, very adult. I mean, it definitely does have sex and violence. So for, you know, I guess we all have to give our little trigger warnings now. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's definitely aimed at an adult audience. And what was fascinating to me when I published it was how many men liked it. That really surprised me. I didn't expect romantic suspense to appeal to guys, but apparently this one did. And I think maybe because and I know at some point I'm going to read a little passage from the book, but maybe because I do represent, I think, male thought process without apology or disdain mm -hmm. in it. Let's imagine a situation. You have this very, very risky and very difficult and complicated procedure. And at what point do you then think, oh, I'm going to write a book about this? Well, that's what's funny. I remember meeting with my friend, the one who guided me through this, and it was about four months after the surgery. And this, uh, truthfully, it takes almost two years to completely come back. That's how major a surgery it is. So I was still kind of in recovery mode. And I remember just sort of saying, well, I don't know what I'm going to write about. And then somehow after I met with him, the idea for this novel just kind of catapulted out of me I don't even know where so I when I first met with him to discuss writing it wasn't even thinking about writing this and it just sort of and I wrote it very quickly and I look back now with my current project and how much I mean I'm four and a half years in on research and writing and about 80,000 words in and I can't imagine that I got this published in under six months you know especially with it being my first effort But, um, and I actually did a lot of research for the first one too. I mean, not at the same level as when you're researching World War II and the Cold War, which is an incredibly complex topic. But, you know, I did research on medical statutes, on, you know, statistics of doctors who end up sleeping with their patients. Um, How many? I mean, I, 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 it, it's something like, this is going to shock you. It's something like 20% that have admitted to it. Those are the ones that have admitted to it. I was really stunned by that, honestly. Mm -hmm. And then the interesting question is, when 20% of doctors have some kind of affair with their patients, how many patients end up having an affair with their doctors? Well, yeah, I mean, that I don't know, you know, how it goes on the reverse level. And also, you know, whether how much of that is consensual or non-consensual obviously makes a big difference. However, I will mm -hmm. tell you, at least in America, I don't know how it is in Europe, but... In America, I'm pretty sure it's legal in all 50 states. I don't think there's any state where it is legal for a doctor to have even a consensual affair, which is sort of what we deal with in in this novel, Cut Back to Life, my romantic suspense novel. 
it's it's just not legal and i understand why you know it's considered that the you know the patient is vulnerable you know the woman obviously when you're going in for exams your clothes are coming off and so you know i think it's just considered that the and especially in a field like neurosurgery which i think is still more than 90 percent male it's a very it's the it takes the most um time in as a resident where you're practicing in a hospital like sort of under somebody else's auspices before you can go into private practice of any discipline in medicine here in the u.s that was something i remember i researched and it was like you have to be, be a resident for like 10 years so you have to be minimum in your early 30s before you can start your own practice it's a very i mean you can imagine you're dealing with nerves and you yeah. know there's, there's a lot of things that something. can go south there. Yeah. A lot of things that can go south. Yes, yes. And the repercussions are obviously terrible. And I actually remember my own my own surgeon coming in the next day, and he was very experienced and, you know, very highly thought of um, from everyone I talked to. And he said it was one of the most difficult surgeries he'd ever done. And I don't know enough about this stuff to be able to tell you why. I think he said something about my spine was at some strange angle. I don't know. I will tell you, they literally stand there. They have a power drill, just like oh, you, just oh like a power God. drill. But it's, I'm not kidding. It's a medical version of a power drill. And they have your muscles pulled to each side to get down to your spine. You're laying on your you know, stomach, on your face down. And they put this like metal frame to hold your muscles to each side. And so really the worst part of recovery is your muscles spasm from that for a long time. Um, if they could figure out some way to get down to your spine without having to move everything else out of the way, it wouldn't really be that bad. <laughs> but they're not there yet. So. And that's, I mean, after the surgery, you probably don't jump out of bed and run a marathon. Is, is a wheelchair yeah, walk? There will that, be or? no, no marathons are in my future. No. There's no, no high impact anything. I honestly, after what he told me, and I realized he wouldn't have told me anything if it hadn't gone well in the end. But after what he told me, I just was glad that I could walk and move. And it, it, it still takes, I mean, it's four years later. I still have to stretch a lot. Your muscles can still kind of contract. And, but you know, I'm fine and I'm grateful for it. And I hope to God I never have to have anything yeah. like that again. It's a lot. It was a lot. Let's let's maybe let's get back to that point where you said that you talked with a friend about publishing. How how was that initiated? Did you go to him, or did did he go to you and say, "Oh, Miranda, you definitely need to write something. Let's talk about it." It's so interesting because I don't honestly remember. I don't remember what initiated the conversation. Maybe he just had mentioned to me that he had published a bunch of books and I was curious and I do remember I do remember we had lunch a few times just to discuss kind of what was involved and I do remember feeling so overwhelmed by oh my god you know you got to know the genre and this and that and I mean there's so many technical things you have to know to do um, but I was very blessed because he guided me towards you know professional creators and formatters and things like that so that when the book came out in both paperback and as an ebook, I really don't think you can tell the difference between that and a 
you know, traditionally published book. And that was really thanks to him. I wouldn't have known any of these resources to look at without his help. But yeah, I mean, as far as what really initiated it, I, I don't, I don't remember. It's one of those odd things. I, I don't know. I don't know. I was still working. I still had my news editor job then. So I don't know what brought it on. It's funny. And how did you go about writing that? Did you spend two or three months plotting everything? Did you jump right into writing the first page? Again, it being four years ago, and I'm so deep now into my second one, I know I didn't, I know I didn't map it all out. I'm not really a mapper outer kind of person. Um, I sort of, I, I would describe my process as a little more like, you know, you start with the big slab of marble and you kind of chip, chip, chip. Well, okay, I don't really see the face yet. Okay, let me get an eye here and a nose here. I, I think that's sort of my approach to writing is I kind of keep going until it looks the way, sounds the way, reads the way I want it to. Um, so it's a little bit more organic. But how I did that one exactly and how I knew when I was done with it, um, I self-edited it too. I did not have, a, which I will have a professional copywriter on, on this next one. But I just, you know, I felt like I edit for a living and um, I just did it all, did it all myself, proofed all the formatting, which I did have a professional formatting company. But you still have to proof it all to make sure there's no errors. And that is a gruesome process. Probably what I dread the most about, you know, with getting the next one done is just remembering how much I hated. But I mean, you have to do it. You have to do it. So do you remember maybe just roughly um, how many drafts in total it took you to get from the first version that you wrote down to the finished version that we can get now? I don't know exactly. I will say that, again, my writing process, because I'm so used to, was so used to editing news, I don't really do a draft and then put it away and then come back and do a second draft. I kind of constantly reread and edit and refine as I go. So, for example, I can tell you with the one I'm working on now, where I'm four and a half years in, I have probably been through the first five chapters a hundred times. I'm not kidding. I mean, it just, I'm just constantly looking through them again. We find sometimes you switch the order of chapters with the first one. Again, I, I got it published pretty quickly. So I don't, I don't, I just don't even remember. I mean, but I, but I know I didn't map it out. I'm not a mapper outer. It's just kind of like, okay, does the story work now? Do I, you know, did I get all the plot holes? Is it interesting? Does it flow? The characters make sense. Um, it's, it's the same way. It's the same way I live, Eldrick. I make it all up as I go along. <laughs> it seems to have worked as well as so far. So, I hope so. I hope so. And once you had this book ready, you decided to self-publish right away? Or did you maybe try to look for a traditional publisher for a bit? No, that one I did know I was going to self-publish the entire time. It, it didn't even occur to me to reach out to a traditional publisher. Now why? with the one I'm working, why? Um, I think it just seemed way beyond my, you know, my realm. Um, that's a whole another skill set. You have to know how to write query letters and reach out to agents and 
again, it's it's like the business of writing as opposed to the writing itself, like what I was talking about with show business. And I think that just seemed, I just wanted to get it published. I was excited to get it published. And, um, and I think for me, it was the right thing to do just to kind of, you know, get it out and produce something that I'm still proud of that story. I think it really turned out very well. And, um, you know, I, for the second one, I'm reasonably sure, I'm not going to say 100, 100, but I'm reasonably sure I'm also going to self-publish the second one. I had thought about querying. I just think that the business, just like the whole world, it's interesting. Publishing is sort of reflecting the world. You know, economics are all crazy right now. Um, everything seems uncertain. Every rule that we've all taken for granted is, you know, thrown up in the air. And I think the publishing industry is kind of reflecting that. And so I don't know for someone who doesn't have a long track record with a traditional publishing house, if this is really the best time to start that. And I mean, everyone has to make their own decision. For me, and I work with a book publicist, so I sort of got the marketing thing already underway. I just, to me, it just, I don't want to wait another, you know, three, four years to get an agent, see if I can get a deal. And then, you know, you don't know what you're going to, you know, apparently the advances for first time authors are not great. I just, I just really want to get it out at this point. It's been such a, um, bloodletting <laughs> this one this said the second one has been a, a really a major major effort to write the story and i think i'm probably a year away from it actually being published yeah yeah i mean traditional publishing really doesn't seem to be what it once was anymore exactly and the other day i saw some statistics about it that the book market itself doesn't necessarily change that much over the last couple of years, but that the books that traditional publishers sell less are just one-to-one going to self-publishers, to, to indie authors who just do the, do the, all the stuff that goes into publishing a book themselves. And for many people, if you know how to do that, if you know how to market your book, if you know how to put all the pieces together, seems like a really good financial decision also right you have a lot more royalties of course you have to invest a little bit but you can yourself decide how you want to invest it where you want to market it and in the end you can much easier make a living as a self-published author than with a traditional publisher and then and let's be honest none of it is easy again i think my background in show business has been really helpful going into this industry because you know in show business it's it's literally like one or two percent of people are making a serious living mm. you know in, in in acting that's the truth um then maybe there's another you know five that are kind of doing okay you know but i mean the vast majority are never going to hit it and i think the same is is true when you write you cannot write a book specifically because you want to get rich because it's very unlikely that you will. (laughs) Um, I think you have to write a story because you feel like no one else can tell it the way you can tell it. And in the case of the one I'm writing now, it really involves a lot of my own family. They've been fictionalized in the story. 
But there isn't anyone else who knew these people the way I know them, who can tie them into global events um, the way I can. So, you know, I kind of feel like this is my chef d'oeuvre, um, hopefully. And um, yeah, I do. I, I like, I'm a bit of a control freak. So I like the idea that I can control the cover art. I can control, you know, the font that we printed in. I can control the paper. I can control who we market it to because definitely no matter whether you're traditional or not you have to be very creative with your marketing efforts now it's such a saturated i mean there's millions i think they i think they estimate on amazon alone there's like 10 million books Hmm. maybe more so you know the, the field is so glutted no matter what genre you're in you really you know sometimes i hear authors on Twitter and things and they're like I I don't want to I don't want to get involved in marketing I don't and I'm like well you kind of have to I mean if you don't I I don't really think it's something that you can just hand off to anyone completely and say I'm not going to have anything to do with this that being said you know you definitely want to have someone who's expert who's um, creative who thinks outside of the box because that's book marketing world we're living in now. I mean, um, you know, I know with my publicist, we've already discussed some really niche audiences and how we can reach them. And it's it's going to be nothing out of a playbook, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it's also, also probably the financial uh, possibilities that one has in right? You, you just can't basically buy out Times Square and uh, display a book everywhere so you kind of have to look for maybe uh, roads less traveled and kind of have to be smart about where to invest your, your time and money and that's really a good a good uh, good point it really is you're right i mean obviously none of us have we wish we did but we don't have endless marketing budgets and so we have to be very targeted um you know if you're going to do any kind of book signings or tours, you know, you really have to think about what is it going to cost, you know, to go to all these places and you've got to bring your own book copies with you sometimes. And so, yes, there's really a lot to consider. And I, I think I, this way I started working with my book publicist in January, knowing that I wouldn't publish the next book for probably 18 months and I don't think it was too soon at all first of all obviously she's helping me market the first one but I think what's good is you know she and I are establishing a relationship we're figuring out you know what I'm really good at what I you know what I might need more help with and it kind of gets the ball rolling you don't want to wait until the book is published to get I mean, it, think about a movie. Think about a movie. They, you know, like if you look at successful movies like, you know, Mission Impossible, Tom Cruise, they they have the trailer out for that a year in advance. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. you know, you kind of have to use those as your paradigms. I mean, this is how you create. You have to build a little excitement and, um, you know, interact with an audience. You need a little bit of luck, but um, I, I just think it, it takes it takes a lot of thought how you're going to market a book it really does mm. yeah and that's what's 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 making self-publishing so, so difficult for a lot of people that it's really not just sitting down in your little chamber somewhere writing your book and then that's it but right you have to take care of all these of all these aspects right like for example you said that you also 
edited your first book completely yourself. But how about all the other parts, like the cover? Did you do that yourself too? No, the cover, and this was where my friend was so helpful. Um, he steered me towards a company that's out of New Zealand. At that time, they have actually since discontinued this, I'm very sorry to say. At that time, they had some cover art that they called prefab. So it was everything. I mean, it was for, you know, children's literature, um, spy thrillers, romance. They just had these artists who had come up with these sort of concepts and what they would do is it was a lot less expensive than having a custom-made cover but they would allow you to tweak it you know within reason for no additional charge and I know I did that with my first one and I'm doing it with the second one which thank God I got the cover art before they stopped <laughs> making it because I absolutely love my cover art for both of them really but I did tweaks on both of them and um, so they were yeah they're professional you know professional art um, no different than what you would see in a traditionally published. And there, there are quite a few of these companies out there now. I mean, it's finding these resources. I think what's happened is as the indie publishing market has grown, obviously the companies that serve that market have also grown and expanded. But again, like everyone else, you know, everyone's affected financially right now. And so I guess that's why I'm very sad that the New Zealand company has stopped offering the prefab Art, but there must be some financial reason for it, I guess. Um, I mean, if they're offering so. that for basically free, then. Well, the art itself was not free. It was the fine tuning it, you know, like you could add this, you could do a little tweak here. I think they let you have like three or four little tweaks to it. Um, but the basic cover art was done. And obviously they had sort of a space for, you know, your title goes here, the author's name goes here. And you could tweak that also within reason. Um, but you just end up with a very professional looking product. Would you mind giving us some of a financial breakdown of how much you invested in your first book? Oh, wow. Um, Maybe just roughly, if you remember. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I remember, I'm just trying to pull this, pull this out. I think there was a package for the cover art and the formatting. And again, remember this was four years ago, so the economy mm. was sort of in a different place. No. You know, maybe it was like 1200 something like that, all told. I mean, not crazy. Mm -hmm. It wasn't mm -hmm. insane. And, um, yeah, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't really. Now, I didn't use, you know, back then I didn't have a book publicist. I was just mm -hmm. kind of getting set up on Twitter and doing my own thing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, obviously a publicist is an additional expense. And, I mean, that just varies so much based on you know, what they're doing and, you know that kind of thing um there's a huge huge range of costs involved with that but um you know i think i think if you, you it's look it's like any it's like car shopping it's like anything else you need to mm -hmm. do some comparisons right and you know don't take the first thing you see and take recommendations from people who have already you know used a company that you know are legit uh, you know, again like with every other business in the world you're going to get scammers and schemers and you know buyer beware caveat emptor as they say right so you know just make sure you're working with legit businesses that have a good track record would you mind also giving us maybe a rough ballpark about how much you made back from your first book well i don't think i've made profit on it 
to be honest with you. Um, I I know I'm in the high end of what they say. I think they say like 300 copies is pretty good for yeah. certainly a first time in the author. And I'm the very average, close. The average is around like uh, 200 per, per author. Yeah, so. so I'm I'm way past that. I'm not yeah. quite at 300, but I'm almost at 300. It's four years in, you know, and using a book publicist for the last year. So, you know, I do get I do get the royalties from Amazon. Um, you know, it might buy me a meal at a fast food restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> That's better than nothing. It's you know what? That's the way I look at it. And honestly, I get I'm not kidding you. I get very excited for any sale i really do one thing that's been fascinating to me with i don't know if this is my audience or what the paperbacks are what people really want and of course they're more expensive but i don't know maybe people are just long for you know the feel of paper in their hands or the smell of a new book or what it is but that's been very interesting to me that people are generally more interested in real book than an ebook and look i'm perfectly happy whichever one they want to buy and the ebooks are formatted the same way as the you know paperback i mean they're beautifully formatted and they should look beautiful on your kindle so you know that's just one of those things you don't know in advance and it's just been kind of fascinating to see how it played out do you have also your book on kindle unlimited i don't now let me tell you what my experience was with that i did decide to try it at one point fairly early on with the first book and i did i think the minimum amount of time you could do was three months i don't know if that's still but i think it was 90 days i did it and i did get quite a few reads but what i also discovered because remember anyone who has kindle unlimited you know they can download whatever they want for free mm. so you know I just saw, especially on Goodreads, a lot of reviews that I was like, okay, these people were not a demographic. They just, they either didn't understand what I was saying or, you know, the words were too big. <laughs> I don't know what. I just, I just sort of saw that I think maybe there, there certainly are authors, I guess, who do great with Kindle Unlimited, but that was sort of a one and done for me. I definitely will not do it with this next book. That's not going to be my audience at all. Um, you know, the next book is somewhat erudite and requires a little bit of historical knowledge to dive into it. And, you know, I don't think most, look, I don't want to discourage any 20-year-olds who are brilliant from reading my books, okay? But, you know, I think in general, it's probably going to be attractive to a slightly older, educated you know, reader, it's got a lot of military history, which I am being meticulous about mm -hmm. verifying. I have a lot of friends who've done, you know, decades in the military and who are very knowledgeable about military history. And so not only am I doing my own research on it, but then I'm running it by them and going, you know, is this, because here, here's the thing that, that I've discovered, you can research a lot. Here's what you cannot research. How does an officer who's actually in the field, and remember, this is in World War II, so it's a different era, you know, there's no computers. Mm. How do they count materiel that is, you know, dropped out of an airplane, that kind of thing? I mean, there's no way to know that unless you've done it. Mm. And so, you know, things like that, I run by my military friends to make sure that the conversations sound authentic. And I'm really proud of the fact that I'm going into 
you know, that much detail with it to make sure that um, scenarios, I mean, what I'm working on now is a World War II, Cold War spy thriller. And so, as you can imagine, there's a lot of dark stuff and a lot of the dark stuff is true history. Um, and I just want to make sure that, you know, it's all relayed in a very realistic way because you know Jane, look we all love james bond i loved i love the bond series as much as anyone else the truth is hot guys like daniel craig usually are not hired to work for the cia they don't want someone who's going to draw that much attention you know who's going to be you know having his way with all the babes that's they, they really don't want that <laughs> no they want more of like an average joe they want you to be able to kind of blend and it's interesting because I have one of my characters in my book who actually isn't such a blender and he has to kind of like work at, you know, blending because that's how important it is to, they, they don't want you to stand out in a crowd when you're doing anything in espionage or intelligence. Just to finish off the, the financial topic, did what you made with the book, did that meet your expectations? I don't, I mean, honestly, I don't think I had great expectations. I certainly was not, you know, expect, I remember when I started it, I, I had a good job. So, you know, I wasn't worried about it for that. Um, I have since actually left that job and I am writing full time now. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think so. I, any, you know, listen, I'm excited that anybody bought it and read it i mean nobody knew who the hell i was or <laughs> so you know that's why i said i still i'm not kidding you when i go into kdp on amazon and i see a sale it's like yeah like it's so exciting <laughs> to me you know because somebody felt compelled to i mean they have so many things to choose and somebody felt compelled to um and of course on amazon they i'm actually not that thrilled about this amazon has i think my first three chapters on my cut back to life page more than I would offer up for free. So people can certainly read, you know, enough of it to see if they like my style, like the story or drawn into it before they spend a penny. Um, and I assume that most people probably do. So, you know, that makes me feel good too. But that's a perfect segue. Talking about reading a little part of the book. You brought us a little passage to read today, didn't you? I did. I did, and I'm going to, so let me set this up a little bit. I don't want to give away too much of the plot, but what we have in this story is there is a, excuse me, an L.A. neurosurgeon. He's like the top-rated neurosurgeon in town and an A-list movie star, and they're both like in their early 60s, so that's kind of the interesting twist with this romance novel is we have older, I guess what people like to call boomers. Mm. <laughs> that's such a negative connotation, but... Um, and they have consensually become involved. <clears throat> and because of an issue that, again, I don't want to give away the plot, it is revealed to uh, the Santa Monica police that this doctor has become involved with this patient, and it's illegal. So he is brought up in front of the medical board, which is exactly what would happen in real life in California. And so the passage I'm going to read is he hasn't yet faced the medical board, but he's kind of thinking about, you know, the morality and, and everything that he's dealt with his whole life. Because remember, he's like 60, right? So he's mm -hmm. had you know, 40 years to go through this of everything that he's dealt with and that he knows other doctors have dealt with. So that's kind of where we're 
where we are starting. So I will just dive in if that's okay with you. Yeah, ready when you are. All right. In the moment when he had to face the repercussions of simply loving someone completely with body, mind, and soul, he felt caught in a trap that there was no way out of except to pray for mercy from people who didn't know him or care about his intentions. He had, after all, clearly done something strictly forbidden in medical practice, and that was to become involved sexually and intimately with a patient. Back in his Harvard Medical School days, he and his classmates had had discussions about this very issue. They were all in their 20s with raging hormones and had access to endless naked women willing to disrobe ingenuously before them to be examined on numerous occasions. They were told over and over by professors that this was a sacred trust. And yet they all questioned if not one of these men throughout their multi-decade careers had really not a single time taken advantage of these opportunities. Their discussions back then were less about love and more about lust, of course. If an attractive woman offered you a BJ while in your office while she had her top off and she had perfect breasts and an exquisite face. Paraphrase Shakespeare, they said, Hath not a doctor's senses, affections, and passions like any other mortal? Were they to be held to an inhuman standard, rising above it all, no matter how delicious the temptation? Yes, the elder doctors all told them in class. Yes, indeed, they were to rise above it all. It seemed like a near-impossible task. At least one fellow classmate later lost his residency at Johns Hopkins and he was found inside a curtained area with an attractive patient down on her knees. That's the passage. Awesome. And that's from your book, Cut Back to Life. That is from my book, Cut Back to Life. And just, you know, to give people a little insight into the title, um, obviously there's a little bit of a play on words there because we're dealing with the neurosurgeon and they use scalpels, right? So they're cutting you open. But in Hollywood, when they go from one scene to another, you know, they call it a cut, you know, so cut to this scene, cut to that. So it's kind of a little play on words tying together Hollywood and the, um, and the neurosurgeon. Kind of a double pun in a way. Exactly, exactly. And you talked a lot about your new book, your next book that's coming out uh, early next year. Well, probably middle to late next year, okay. but it's going to, it's going to be next year. I just have, I have decided next year will be my fifth year working on it. And, um, I'm, I'm, like I said, I'm at about 80,000 words now, you know, hope to keep it at about a hundred thousand. Part one is pretty much done. Part two is, it's a three part novel. Um, part two is probably 60%. So, you know, I'm really going to be focused on part two till the end of the year. Part three is partially written. That's going to be the shortest section. But it the, the book runs from, in total, from the mid-1920s into the almost mid-1960s. So, you know, if you look at how much the world changed in those 40 years, it's really unbelievable. I mean, it really completely mm. changed. So it's a fascinating time period in history, you know, dealing with World War II, dealing with the Cold War. And I can promise you this, 
There is so much about the Cold War that people don't know. And it is dark, darker, and darkest. Um, you know, I think more people are familiar with, you know, World War II, at least generally. But uh, the Cold War was really a lot of hidden government operations going on. And I have covered, I think, most of them. So we're all going in there. And as your second book, you said that your approach changed a little bit. I mean, you definitely did a lot more research on it, but you yes. probably didn't start plotting everything into the detail and then uh, after one year starting to write the first page. That's correct. I did not. And actually, really only in the last six months, I decided in part two, with some of the information I discovered in research, to change direction a little bit with the plot. I think it's going to be much darker and much more interesting and much more I think I think readers are honestly going to gasp when they read some of this stuff and of course they're not going to know what I made up and what I didn't but I can tell you that 95% of the book is based on reality it really is either either because they're family members that I knew personally or it's real history that I have researched meticulously and again I don't go from third-party sources without finding actual government memos. Um, I love, sometimes you can find interviews with people even from, you know, 30, 40 years ago. I love watching those, seeing how somebody spoke, seeing how they, you know, there was one, so Joseph Tito was the, in theory, the marshal, the president of Yugoslavia until his death in, I think, 1980. And he was getting support from the Allies, the United States and Britain, because he was sort of a capitalist communist as opposed to Stalin. And he broke away from Stalin in 48. So what was fascinating to me is I watched a newsreel where he went to London. I believe the war was over. It was probably the early 50s. And he's in full uniform. He's, you know, being guided around on this official tour going by all the British troops. And think about it. There's no computers. There's no social media. They did have these newsreels that they would show in movie theaters, you know, with very dramatic mm -hmm. propaganda-ish kind of, you know, music. I'm sure you've seen those, right? They're, they're yeah. really fun to watch. And what was fascinating to me in watching him was how much he understood you know, the importance of how people would perceive him from these. And he played the game to the hilt. I mean, he's shaking hands with everybody. He's schmoozing. He's saluting the troops. You know, I love I love Britain, uh, all of this stuff. So that was very impressive to me to watch someone who got the game before most people did. Mm -hmm. um, was, so, that, was the yeah. possibility to do that kind of research, was that the biggest motivation to go for this kind of genre instead of doing another romance book? Really, the motivation to do this genre was because I had volumes and volumes of letters, of um, photographs that my parents had taken while they were serving in the State Department across Europe. And I started tying together things in their letters with, okay, you have, here's the first thing you have to understand. When you grow up and you have a parent who's doing 
I'm going to say probably high level intelligence. Okay. You know, I don't think my dad was running around with a, you know, handgun in his pocket. Okay. But, um, they're, you know, they have clearances. They're not allowed to talk about it. So remember my mom had passed quite young. So the only person I had to tell me the story was my dad. And he literally just painted this story of, Oh, I was with the state department and here we are with, you know, Yugoslavian goat farmers. And here's a lovely, it was just bucolic. I don't remember him ever mentioning Tito. I don't remember him ever mentioning communism. There was no political anything to it. It was just, Oh, we were young and we were having fun. (laughs) And so it really wasn't until after he passed, which is now, 11 years ago that um, I started having some conversations with siblings and doing some research and the light bulbs started, you know, going on uh, about what he probably really did. And the only thing that I have from the State Department is I do have a State Department dossier, which has been very helpful. I will tell you that I contacted them again a few months ago to ask for more. And they said, uh, we might get it to you in two and a half years i'm not kidding that's literally what they said and i and i'm pretty sure in two and a half years if i ever hear back from them again i'll say we couldn't find anything yeah yeah but learning learning so much more about your father after he passed did that change your image that you had of him oh my god so much so much because you know you think about that annoyed you about you know we all have growing up right oh this, this trait annoyed me about my father he was so kind of overly humble you know what i mean he was friendly to everyone he met and now i look at it through filter of knowing what he did and i realize these are kind of like things you have to foster when you do that line of work you have to very ingenuously be able to speak to strangers and just sound like you're talking about the weather to to get them to talk about themselves and hopefully give you some info so yes i do look at him as far cagier now than I think I saw him in real life and I mean obviously you're almost living like a double life right I mean you mm-hmm. you well you're not I mean you are you really are living kind of a double life because there's so many things you can't tell your family and um yeah so yes I do see him differently working on the second book do you plan to invest a lot more money into the second book than you did in the first one? I think that, I mean, obviously the marketing, you know, is an investment. Um, From what I understand, things like the cost of paper have gone, right? We've all seen Mm -hmm. Amazon sent out that thing recently, right? Saying their prices were going up, their wholesale prices. So, you know, this is going to be a book that's almost twice as long. So the wholesale cost of printing and I probably will get hardbacks as well as paperbacks is going to be higher, which means the price of the books is going to have to be a little higher. <clears throat> I'm going to put whatever I can into it because it's such a, it's so much my heart and soul. And I think I'm in a unique position to share insights about what it is like to grow up as the child of someone who is kind of raising you in a facade, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I sort of grew up with this big story, basically, when I look mm. back on it. It's, you know what, you know what it is? It's part of the truth. Just a lot of the truth is left <laughs> out. Uh, the, the really interesting stuff is left out. So, um, 
you know, I, I just think sharing the impact of, look, one thing we all, I believe, can connect with is how secrecy affects you know, your relationships, how you relate to other people. I mean, it has a great impact. And um, so I definitely am kind of trying to explore that. And there will, by the way, be a sequel to this novel that will follow more the child of these people that will be sort of loosely based on yours truly. Mm -hmm. um, although it's going to have a lot of fiction in it that's historical fiction as well, because I do want to show kind of how the next generation is affected by growing up under those circumstances. Um, you know, and, and just it, what's funny to me when I look back is how I never asked my dad any questions about anything. And it, it was like, no one ever told me not to ask questions. It's just sort of like, I knew not to ask. I don't know. It's just really funny when I look back on it. And why, why do you enjoy writing these autobiographical inspired books? The one about your surgery, the other one about your family story. Why do you prefer writing those instead of, for example, like a fantasy author, just making up your own world? Well, it's, I mean, coming from a news background, I honestly never saw myself as a fiction writer until I started doing it. So someone I, someone I interviewed with once called it creative nonfiction. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. So what do they say? Write what you know. And so this is sort of combining my news background and my research. And I want to have hard facts in there with this newfound creative side to me but I think I'm more of a actual writer in a lot of ways than I am and I have great respect for people who can make up a story A to Z but I, I just don't think I could do it I don't I don't think it's how my mind works and also this material is so rich and so interesting and so shocking a lot of the time it really is shocking um, that it, it makes for an amazing story but something like so writing a whole nonfiction book, would that be interesting to you? I don't know now that it would. I like the freedom to marry the two, to be mm -hmm. able to, the funny thing is, there was one thing that's going into the new novel and my, my brother is very educated on government and things like that. And I remember sharing this one passage that I had researched meticulously. And he said, that would never have happened at that era. And I said, well, it did. So, uh, you know, what's what's really interesting is going to be people are going to be like, wait, that happened then? Yes. Yes, it did. Yes, it did. And, you know, I'm not going to tell them what's true and what isn't true in the novel. I mean, they can research it themselves if they want to. I just want them to read it as a great story. But I think people are going to be a little bit shocked about some of the stuff that went on that... Um, It's pretty buried now, I can tell you that. <laughs> um, there, was, there, is, there is a very successful law firm that the Dulles brothers, so one of them was the head of the CIA in the 50s and one of them was Secretary of State, uh, both had a big piece of this family law firm. And if you go on that, I won't even tell you the name of the law firm now, but you go on that law firm's website now, I think maybe on like, you know, page five, there's one passing reference to that because it's not really a great association. 
um, because of stuff that they did. So that that's just kind of interesting. And it shows you how history is always refiltered for every new generation. It is constantly refiltered. You know, if you look at, I love watching shows about the American Revolution. And I think the same things that people criticize now about what people do with the government here is exactly what they did back then that everybody says oh they were so heroic you know they stood up to the government well if you stand up to the government now you know you're like evil so it's it's just very interesting how people refilter information generation after generation and i guarantee you in another 200 years that story will also be told do you already have a final title i do i'm not going to tell you what it is but i do <laughs> I'm gonna wait. I'm gonna wait to do you know the cover reveal and the title for when we're closer to mm -hmm. location. But you already. Um, but I have. With... Sorry. No, go ahead. No, uh, you know I, I have run the cover art and the title by a few, like maybe five people max, and everybody loved it. So you know mm -hmm. that was good. And you're planning on releasing it somewhere maybe mid late next year. I'm gonna say probably. Let's say fall-ish 2024. Mm. <laughs> that's my goal. I mean, that's what I'm really pushing towards because I think you mm. get to a point where you go, let's just get this thing. You know, mm. let, let's get this out, right? I mean, after so, what, almost five years. After almost five years. I mean, it's really... You would have told me when I started that it would take this long to write. <laughs> I would have been, are you out of your mind? And I hope to God that the sequel does not take that long. Mm. I don't think it will. I hope it won't. Um, but it's but, it's. But do you think it, it took that long because you just enjoyed writing it and enjoyed doing the research, or do you, in hindsight, think that there were some big mistakes that you did? I think what happens when you're doing this kind of research and so much of it is buried is sometimes you can spend three days on three paragraphs because what happens is you discover a name and something you're researching. Oh, I don't. Who was that? Okay, let me go research that. And I call it rabbit holing. You know, you're jumping from one research hole to another. Mm -hmm. You have to connect all these dots. Believe me, nobody lays out the connections for you because a lot of times these connections are not very flattering, okay? Mm -hmm. So you have to kind of put all these pieces together And then sometimes you find out somebody was involved in something that is so counterintuitive. And then you have to sort of research that and figure out, okay, well, you know, you have to do like an FBI profile <laughs> on them. What, what created this person to behave in this way that seems so antithetical to the way you would expect them to behave? And all of these things just take a lot of time. And then you also have to craft a story that reads in an interesting, fluid way. And you have to write conversations and you know, connect characters, and um, this this has a lot of characters in it, you know, fictional and real, and, you know, you're trying to marry them all and make them all sound same, you know what I mean? You're not trying to make mm -hmm. the fictional characters sound different than the accurately historical ones, and even with the historical ones, it's not like any of us were, you know, there when they were talking, so you have to sort of imagine the way they spoke and it's it's really an interesting exercise but it takes a lot of time mm. and at least we can expect it let's say in time for the for the christmas uh, for christmas time next year i hope so i mean really if it, i mean I'm, with every with everything i have i would expect it to be out 
then or before with everything I have. Definitely. Yes. Okay. Yes. That's the goal. We're, we're now, we're now, I, I say I'm in about mile 21 of the marathon right so we have about five miles to go but there's but those are hard miles so yeah <laughs> yes. those are the last five hard miles when you're like tired and you're pushing and you're you know mm-hmm. I like right now it's hard for me to imagine that moment when I go okay I'm done you know yeah. but I mean I'm you're gonna have to at some point you have to have that moment right at some point you just have to let it go do you just have to say I've, I've given it my all i've done everything this one will have a professional copy editor at the end hopefully find any plot holes or anything i've missed and i like i said i've run it by all these you know military experts and intelligence experts so hopefully it's i, I hope people will love it it's i put my heart and soul into it so i hope they will miranda where can the listeners find you and your books so Cut Back to Life is available exclusively on Amazon. That is, of course, the one, you know, challenge with self-publishing. Um, I probably will pay for expanded publishing on the next one, but Cut Back to Life is available exclusively on Amazon in either ebook or paperback. And can they find you on social media somewhere? They can find me on social media uh, I believe it's at Miranda Armstead, just the way it sounds on Twitter and on Instagram. And I also have a pretty cool website that's uh, Miranda, I think it's Miranda-Armstead.com. If they put in Miranda Armstead, they'll find it. I have a lot of media interviews on there. It's got, oh, it has a really cool book trailer for the first for cut back to life that is pretty schnazzy um, so i've got a book trailer on there so they can find out all kinds of information on miranda armstead so it's a-r-m-s-t-a-d-t it's the last name miranda armstead.com and um and also i think those also have links to my social media as well so you can find me in those places miranda thank you so much for stopping by it was a blast I, this was delightful. I really, really enjoyed it. I, and I thank you so much for giving me the opportunity. Thank you, Eldrick. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Eldrick Talks. You can find all the links to the socials and the books that we talked about in this episode's description. New episodes are coming out every Friday. For more information about upcoming episodes, head over to eldrick-talks.com. That's eldrick-talks.com for more information about upcoming episodes. Thank you again for listening and see you next time.